Malachi 3, verses 16 through 18, God's word says this. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The, the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, <coughs> says the Lord of hosts. In that day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Church, let us pray. Father in heaven, your name is hallowed and to be worshipped above all. We see in Malachi Prior to this, many people who did not fear your name and hallow your name and revere it. But here we read of a people who do. And so, Lord, I pray that you would open us to the realities of what it means to turn from our sin and turn to you in obedience, in faith, and in repentance. I pray that you'd help us to see how delightful it is to be your people and that you would be our God. That there is a distinction coming between righteous and unrighteous people. There's a separating coming between those who serve God and those who do not. There is a final judgment coming in which we are rewarded for loving you and believing in your son, Jesus Christ, and those who do not are forever damned to the lake of fire. God, these are eternal realities. These are sobering thoughts. May we ponder them, Lord, and when it's all said and done, those of us who believe in 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 your son who trusts in him, may we rejoice in who Christ is. And those who don't know Christ, God, may they tremble before you, the Holy One, the Righteous One. And may they be given a new birth, God, by you, so that they might turn from their sin and come to Christ as Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, please be seated. The sermon is titled, God's Love for Obedience. This is part two. It is subtitled, the remnants, repentance. God's love for obedience, part two. The remnants, repentance. Forty-two years ago, I confessed that Jesus was Lord, and I confessed that God raised him from the dead. I did that so that I might be saved from God's wrath and given eternal life. Ever since then, the Lord has been the supreme love of my life, even though I've had lots of moments and periods of great sin, just like many of you. Those that were in the, uh, my church at that time began to disciple me, and they helped me to memorize scripture in the King James Version of the Bible. This was a long time ago. I had little note cards with scripture references on them on one side, and on the other side was the scripture, and I carried them everywhere that I went as a six-year-old child, and I used them to share the gospel with my friends and with my uncles and aunts, even at the age of six and seven. On one, of, uh, one of the first verses I memorized was Romans 10.9. Romans 10.9. It says, this is quoting the King James Version, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And then we skipped over a few verses, and I memorized Romans 10.13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And mind you, I grew up in a fundamentalist church um, that only believed the King James Version was actually the word of God and everything else wasn't any other legitimate translation. 
And so I memorized everything in a Shakespearean language that was hard to understand. Some of you guys know exactly where I'm coming from. It's my personal belief, though, that the archaic language of the King James Version is one reason, not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons that some believers misapply or misunderstand Scripture. Because 400 years ago, certain words meant different things, and words evolve over time, and sometimes we import our meaning back onto text, and they don't always mean the same thing. Colossians 2, for example, 2 verse 6, in the King James, it says to receive Christ in your heart. Receive Christ in your heart. But when you look at all these verses, many that people have used, none of these verses are actually advocating a magical or incantational prayer in which you ask Jesus into your heart and somehow that transports you into the kingdom of God. Okay, That's not what these verses are advocating. Now, when I came to Christ as Savior, at six years old, I remember understanding the notion of death. I remember understanding the notion of sin and God's judgment and that eternal death was a consequence of my rebellion against God, but eternal life could be mine if I believed that Jesus Christ was crucified, buried, and risen again. At the age of six, I vividly recall that and understood it and understood why death happens. My great-grandmother or great-great-grandmother had recently died uh, prior to that, and I remember being afraid of death and not knowing what death was. And so when I went to church in second grade for the first time, a Christian church, and heard the gospel, it all made sense of why we die and how we can be rescued. And so I believed that Jesus was my Savior, okay? Yet right away, even as I'm hearing the gospel, someone told me that I had to ask Jesus into my heart, which is not found anywhere in Scripture. None of these verses advocate that. In fact, when you better understand these Scriptures, you see that they're actually calling sinners to repent, to receive Christ as your Lord. Out of the heart is where the issues of life are. This directs you. And so to receive Christ into your heart is to say, Lord, you are the Lord of my life, and I will no longer direct my life with my heart desires, but with your heart desires. Okay? And so they're calling us to stop being self-ruled and to be God-ruled, to stop disobeying God and to live a life of obedience under his rule. And these verses are simultaneously calling people not just to repent of their sin, not just to give up self-rule and to turn to Jesus as the ruler of their life, but they're calling for people to put faith or trust or confidence or belief in Jesus, trusting him to save you from the wrath to come. And biblically, those are the only two responses to the gospel. When you've heard that you are a sinner and that Christ was crucified, buried, and risen again for you, the only proper response is stop ruling your life. Jesus is now your ruler and master, and then trust him to save you. Repentance and faith. And that's what Romans 10.9 says. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord or master, and you believe in your heart, not, not just your mind, but your innermost being, you believe with all that you are, that God has raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And that's what it means to call upon the name of the Lord or to receive Christ in your heart. You are receiving him as the master of your life. It is you recognizing and believing that Jesus is your Lord and your Savior and that he will rescue you from damnation and make you one of his kingdom citizens, make you one of his very own. Now, at this point, it is very important to recognize that when anyone, myself and you included, turn to the Lord for salvation, you need to understand that he hears your heart's longing for redemption. He hears 
You know, that internal conversation that you're having with yourself or maybe that you're having with another believer. He hears your longing for salvation and reconciliation. He is not a deaf God. He is not a deaf God. He is fully aware of your repentance and your faith towards him. And he is a faithful God who keeps his word, which is why scripture says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay? There is no person who God accidentally overlooks and is not saved after they turn to him in repentant faith. There is no person that God overlooks. In fact, Scripture says that God is the one who actually gives repentance and faith to people so that they have a gift that enables them to turn from sin and a gift that enables them to, uh, to trust Jesus Christ as Savior. He grants repentance and faith. Soon after my conversion, I remember hearing sermons in which I was assured that God would act on my behalf and ensure my final salvation, that he would not forget me. Although I was saved, I was told that there was a final day in which I was assured, a final day of judgment, that I was assured that I would be saved uh, and that my name had been recorded in something called the Book of Life or the Lamb's Book of Life and that God would not forget his promise to me. It was forever recorded down and I would not be cast into hell. God would act on my behalf and ensure my final salvation in the eternal state as he separated the damned from the saved, as he separated his kingdom citizens from those who would remain in rebellion to him. God would not forget me. He would remember that I was his on that day. I would be rewarded along with other believers, other Christians. And those who did not come to Christ as Savior would be punished forever. My little heart longed for that day. And here I am, 42 years later, believing that same promise, longing for that day, believing God will remember me, that my name is recorded in that book of the saved. He will act on my behalf. I will be rewarded with his presence and the marvelous eternal state. And so will any of you who have turned from your sin in obedience to the gospel and put your faith in Christ to save you. And church, I want you to be assured today and comforted that God will act on your behalf in your final salvation. He will not forget you. You are his treasured possession. He is your God. When you obediently turn to Jesus as Lord, when you repented and believed God at his word, God took notice. He took notice, and you were forever set apart from the wicked and assured final redemption with the righteous, with those God declares righteous and will make righteous. God will remember and act on your behalf. He loves when people come to him with faith-filled repentance. And this is ultimately where we're going to arrive at today in the, these three verses in Malachi. As we come to these three verses in Malachi, we see that God has been addressing the nation of Israel, who, as a whole, they have been rejecting God. Initially, when you read this book, it seems like a big downer, because all we see is Israel's failure after failure after failure after failure. That's all we see. We see sin in their life, and God has a problem with Israel. And he's spoken of judgment to come. There's problems in there. We see, first of all, that they don't believe God loves them. They deny God's love for them. Secondly, we see that 
They despise God's name, and they don't love him, and they prove it by offering polluted sacrifices to God. We also see that they break promise or break covenant with God and with each other. They're betraying each other by participating in unbiblical divorces, divorces that God did not sanction, and they are marrying pagan women. The men are marrying unbelieving women who worship false gods, and now they're getting pulled into their their pagan practices and sorcery. We also see that these people, God has a problem because they believe that God, uh, he tolerates injustice, like sorcery and adultery and oppression. Fifthly, we see that they are robbing God of the offerings or the tithes that are due to the Levites who serve in the temple of God and offer sacrifices on their behalf. They are not giving as they are supposed to the proper tax. It's a theocracy that they're under, not giving the proper tax. And so God is being robbed. And then lastly, we see that they believe in their heart of hearts, they believe it is pointless to obey God. That it is futile to remain in covenant faithfulness to him. In looking at these six problems, we have seen that we have seen what God loves and we have seen what God hates. It's all throughout this prophecy. And because of Israel's faithlessness, they are not faithful to God. And because of her disobedience, we see God's total displeasure with them. And we see a judgment coming. And the judgment is coming from Christ, Malachi tells us. This messenger of the covenant. Okay, And throughout the book, we hear this theme of judgment coming. That God will save some, but punish others. And although we've seen judgment through this book, we've gotten wonderful declarations of grace to come through Christ. We get visions of restoration. We get promises of salvation. We get images of a holy and righteous finality. You see, even God is not a hellfire, gloom and doom preacher. There are those preachers who want to preach only damnation, And they give no proper explanation of the gospel or what Christ has done to save people. And while God gives us a warning of judgment to come, listen, that warning is but a fact that God is gracious and he's letting you know that something bad is coming and you have time to escape it. So while it may be fearful, you have to see that it is the grace of God in giving warning to sinners. So while God gives us a warning of judgment to come, he also gives the hope of salvation for those who would repent And believe his word regarding how to be saved. And the hope of salvation we learn all throughout scripture is only found in Christ. Christ who is presented to us in Malachi. He is both the judge and the savior. He is the condemner and the cleanser. He is the messenger of the covenant mentioned in Malachi. Who is coming to rescue and reward his people. And then he will curse and condemn those who wage an unholy war of sin against him. And so we are continuing this sixth problem, this sixth problem, which kind of transitions us to the end of the book of Malachi. And we're going to be wrapping it up soon. We've got a couple more sermons. And uh, you'll see where God has been going with this entire prophecy. Last week, this problem, the sixth problem that we looked at, we saw how Israel was grumbling and complaining with each other. They're talking amongst each other, complaining, and the complaints are against God. They're not happy with God. 
They believe that it's pointless and they believe it's profitless to obey God and to follow the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the, the Sinaitic Covenant. Those are all synonyms okay, for each other. They had a bad view and they had bad attitudes when it came to those who rebelled against God. They, Israel saw rebels as blessed people, as prosperous, as escaping the justice of God. Like God could not see what was going on. And that's how they saw those who were committing acts of sin. And they were jealous of such people. Their own self-assessment was wrong too. When they looked at themselves, they were self-righteous. They mistakenly believed that they were honoring God. And that God did not keep his promise to bless them if they honored him. So they think they're doing right. They expect blessings. God doesn't bring blessings. Therefore, they think it's pointless to obey God and to follow his commandments in the Mosaic Covenant. It's pointless. It's profitless. They had a skewed view of themselves and of others. And thus they concluded it's better to disobey God and break covenant with him than to obey God and keep covenant with him. Ultimately, we looked and we saw through that lie and we saw how it is never in vain to remain in covenant with God through Jesus Christ. Christ has saved us and reunited us to God. And his shed blood seals or ratifies that covenant and makes it unalterable so that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord in repentance and faith will be saved. And out of love for him, out of love for what he's done for us, we are to remain obediently devoted to our Savior's commands, to our Master's commands. We no longer are to live a, a life dictating how we want to live it is now all about how he wants us to live because he has saved us not so that he will save us we don't obey to get saved we obey out of obedience uh, we obey out of being saved because we have been saved and israel did not feel that way as a whole they rejected the idea that it is good to stay in covenant faithfulness to god yet yet there was a remnant a small group that repented. And they finally picked up on God's message in Malachi, especially problem six. And today we're going to look at that remnant that returned to God. And I pray that this encourages you and also warns those of you that need a warning. The first thing that we're going to look at this morning, number one, is the remnant's repentance led to a renewal of their commitment to God. The remnant's repentance led to a renewal of their commitment to God. I'll say that one more time. The remnant's repentance, it led to a renewal of their commitment to God. Malachi 3.16, the first part of the verse says this, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The word then, this signals a change in the way that the prophecy is being told. It designates a change in time, a change in circumstance. At that time, something happened. This is a, a, a pivot in the way that the story is being told. It says, those who feared the Lord spoke with one another at this time. Now, a couple scenarios are possible. Okay, It could be that their, their response those who feared the Lord spoke with one another, it could be that this is in response to God's problem with them concerning problem number six. 
Now you have to remember, the people as a whole, as an entirety, they spoke harshly against God. That's what we talked about last week. He said, your words have been harsh against me. How? You guys say it's pointless and profitless to serve God. Okay? So these people have all spoken harshly against God as they believe it's pointless to stay in relationship with him. So this could be a response in, in uh, a response according to the rebuke that God has just given them. Okay? And they repented, and they feared the Lord, and they got together and spoke with one another. Or, there's another scenario, and it's not that huge of a difference, but it is a small difference. It could be that they have heard all six problems now that God has addressed. Problem one, two, three, four, five, six. Then those who feared the Lord. At that time, those who feared the Lord got together and spoke together. And honestly, it's kind of hard to tell whether this is a continuation of problem six, or if it's all six problems have been stated, and now God is wrapping it up with a different section. Okay? Um, but there is some blending to be sure, as we're going to see this week and next week. But it seems to me that this response here that we read in verse 16 is all part of the sixth issue that God has with Malachi, or not Malachi, but with the people of Israel as presented in Malachi. Now, the reason being, and let me help you connect so you can see it's part of problem six. Last week, we saw people that were getting together. They were getting together and grumbling and talking about God harshly. And he was not pleased with it. That's the big picture. Grumbling against God, God's displeasure. It is pointless to obey God, this majority group says. Today, we see a minority group getting together and talking about God, but it's different. So the prophet is intentionally contrasting a people who got together and grumbled and God was displeased. The prophet is contrasting this now against the people who got together, they feared the name of the Lord, and then we see in the rest of the passage that God is going to bless them. So do you see the contrast? That's why I'm saying that this is in relation to problem six, not all six problems are done, and now the group is responding as a whole. We're still in problem six, okay? So there's this contrast, and the contrast makes it clear that God loves obedience. He loves repentance, when we see, uh, which we see displayed in this portion of Scripture. When we turn from sin and turn back to God, these people feared the Lord. Feared the Lord. That word fear, this is the fifth time God has used that word in Malachi. The fifth time it's come up frequently. Malachi is only four chapters, and we're not even in a chapter four yet. So within the first three chapters, this is the first time God, fifth time God has used that word. God was Israel's master, he says in chapter 1, and, and their father. And he asks, where is the fear of me? Why don't you fear me? You offered polluted offerings on, on my table. It shows that you don't fear me. You don't revere me. You don't stand in awe of me. That's what it means to fear God. Yes, there is a sense of being scared of God. But properly understood, it means that God is so awesome, so massive, so vast, that we are in awe. Like, whoa, you're huge and I tremble before you in your majesty. It is a sense of honor and reverence and respectful awe. That is why we say God is awesome. It's not a word for surfers. It is a word designed for God. Okay? God says that he curses those who offer nasty sacrifices to him. And his name will be feared among the nations, he also says. My name will be revered 
among the nations. The nations will say that I am awesome. They will honor me. God says that he made a covenant with the Levites. And he says, they feared me. They revered me. They honored me. God says he's going to be a witness and a judge against those who don't fear him and who commit all sorts of evil. So we can see how God responds towards those who honor him and revere him and how he responds to those who don't. There's judgment coming. There's reward coming. And it depends on how you treat God. Do you fear him? And when it says his name, it means who he is, his person. God's name represents him. Here in verse 16, we see that in a land of people who do not fear God, there's a remnant who have now repented and they now fear the Lord. They've taken the message to heart in problem six. And instead of speaking harshly against God with one another, they get together and they speak words to each other. They have some conversations. The scripture doesn't say what they spoke about. So we just have to guess, right? Well, we can infer some things. We can infer that from the rest of this passage that what they talked about at least contained a renewal of their commitment to God and to love him. They are those who feared the Lord, who stood in awe and wonder. They revered him. That is to say, they returned to obedient covenant living. That's what it means to stand in reverence of God. He is your Lord. He is your master. You return out of your sin and to him. Thus they heeded the message of the Lord and gave attention to his words. We know the description of everyone who didn't fear the name of the Lord. So if they now fear the Lord, then we can infer that they are doing the opposite of what all the other people are doing who don't fear the Lord. Does that make sense? Okay. This is starkly contrasted with those who spoke harshly against God. And the response of God to them is favorable. It is favorable, which also indicates that that they had a godly conversation, which you would expect from those who honor or fear or revere the Lord, who stand in awe of him. So we have this inferred but evident contrast between, again, those who spoke harshly of God and those who are now speaking to one another in loving and worshipful statements. It is totally evident because of God's response to them that these words are words of repentance and sorrow and a renewal of their vows to serve and obey God. Church, there are times when when we become indistinguishable from the world. Like the remnant, they were, they were lumped in with everybody else. You all are guilty of these things. And there are times when we are indistinguishable from the world. Individually, as individuals, but even corporately together, where the church can look so much like the world, it is no different than a, a club that the world may form. We often bow to the pressures and the ideologies of the wicked, and we often conform to their image instead of the image of Christ. That's when God's word will come to us and will rebuke us and reprove us and it will call us to continually repent. We are to be a people who revere God and give him praise. We are to be a people who obey God, who obey God because of the great love with which he showed us in Christ. And sometimes we veer away from him and we have to return. And so I wonder if There are sins as a whole church that we are committing that we need to repent of. Just pretend like we're Israel for a moment and God's calling us out on something. If God spoke to us, would there be something that we are all guilty of as a church, as a whole, where we are failing God and need to return to him? Because Christianity is not an individual thing. 
We often speak of Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. But the Lord came to, not to save a person, but a people. Christianity is corporate in its nature. You, we are a body. We are a temple. We are a priesthood. We are his people. This is a group thing. A community union with God. So do we, as a whole, just throwing these things out there, as a whole, do we care for the poor? Or is that something that we need to repent of? I'm not saying that there are individuals that don't care about the poor here, because there are. I'm talking about as a whole, do we care about the poor? As a whole, do we pray for the sick in our church? Do we evangelize as a whole? As a, as a large body of, I mean, we're not large as in 10,000. I mean, as, as the larger body, this church. Do we worship in unity? Or are some of you intentionally leaving yourselves out in the worship of God? Do we all serve in ministry? Using our gifts to build up the church? Are we fellowshipping as a whole around the word? Are we being known and knowing others in this family? Or does nobody know you and you don't know anybody else? Are there things that as an entire entity, as an entire church, that we need to repent of? I'm just throwing that out there. Do we fear the Lord? Or do we need to have some conversations and call each other to repentance? May we never get sucked into the lies the lies that the world throws at us. May God continue to show us grace by calling us to be separate from the world's lame attitude and their lack of adoration for him. May today be a day of repentance and a day of renewed commitment to God for all of us here. You don't have to go to a fantastic retreat or some special conference for God to move you. That's how a lot of people get their spiritual highs by going off to retreats and conferences and up to mountains. And man, God really moved me. What a special time. And then two weeks later, you're back to your normal self. Do you know that God can work on us now through a preacher and through the elders in the church that are not famous? Okay? Your normal average Christian in the church, for thousand, a couple thousand years, it's been built up by just average preachers. It doesn't have to be Bodie Bauckham or John MacArthur or John Piper. As much as we owe to those people for helping us to see some amazing things, God builds up his church in just ordinary, average ways. And God is calling us to repent of whatever it is that's in our life as a body and as individuals, as a husband, as a wife, as a mother, as a grandmother, as kids. And if you don't have that part of family, then you yourself, brothers and sisters, is a time we had some conversations with each other. And that's why it's important to be known because you're able to have your life be seen by other people where other people can help you and call you out of sin and you do the same for others. It is not good and it, you are not as spiritually healthy as you can be if you are isolated, okay? There was a remnant in Israel that repented and renewed their commitment to God. May it be so with us as well, Okay? Again, this is inferred by the fact that God took note of their words and conversations, which is what we see next. The second point, the first one is this, the remnant's repentance led to renewal of their commitment to God. Secondly, we see the remnant's repentance led to a remembrance by God. There's a lot of R's there. I just noticed that, right? 
The remnant's repentance led to a remembrance by God. The remnant's <laughs> struggling here. The remnant's repentance led to a remembrance by God. And this is where we start to see an amazing grace taking place. In verse 16, the second half, it says, The Lord paid attention and heard them, and the book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. God says, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. You remember that folk song we sang a little while ago? This is where it was derived from. The second part of verse 16 says that the Lord paid attention and heard them. He paid attention and heard them. Now, this phrase conveys more than just sound waves bouncing off of the ears of God, off of his eardrums. The Lord paid attention. That is, he inclined his mind. He inclined his mind and thoughts towards them. He was attentive, discerning the meaning of what they said. Discerning the meaning of what they said. Sometimes my wife will ask me, ask me, oh man, I'm sorry, honey. Sometimes my wife will ask me if I heard what she said. And I'll say, yes. And she'll ask, what did I say then? And I don't know what she said. I just heard it. <laughs> I did not discern the meaning. Husbands, help me out. Raise your hand if that's ever been you. All right. Wow, only a few of you. I am in a boat all by myself. I just heard vocal sounds. That is not what God is doing in this passage. God's not pulling a Josh Ritchie, okay? God has fully heard and understood what they are saying, okay? That is what is meant by God paying attention. That is that, is that he heard them. Is, now, the next phrase is, uh, he paid attention and then he heard them, okay? My question is, is, is Malachi repeating himself? He paid attention and, and he heard them. Well, the answer is kind of yes or no, okay? It's conveying some similarity that God heard them, that he paid attention, but the difference is an action. The difference is an action, not just with understanding. Now, as parents... Identify with me here, parents. We may tell our kids to go clean their room, and they may not get up and move, right? And we will respond, did you hear what I said? They may have heard the noises. They may have even discerned the meaning of the words as well, but they have not heeded your voice or your words. They have not obeyed them. They have not moved to action. There was no action-oriented response. That's what this word heard is conveying at and getting at. It's not that God obeyed their words because nobody tells God what to do. Okay? But he listened and responded. He moved. He heard in the sense that it prompted him to action. Make sense? Okay? What was the response? We see next. A book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. God recorded this, figuratively speaking, in a book of remembrance. That is to say, it was logged in the mind of God forever. God will not forget. He is omniscient. He will not forget what they said, but more importantly, because that's not what the text says, it says he will not forget 
them. He wrote a book of remembrance of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. It is a book of remembrance of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. If you remember when I taught, maybe you weren't here for then, uh, maybe you're newer to our church, but I taught through the book of Esther some time ago. There was a guy named Mordecai. He was Esther's cousin, but also her adopted father because her parents had passed away. He, Mordecai, had foiled an assassination attempt on the king's life, King Ahasuerus, okay, who marries Esther through a beauty pageant. We won't get into all the details. But Mordecai's actions of foiling this plot to assassinate King Ahasuerus, they were recorded in a book of remembrance or a book of chronicles in the king's presence. Now, this isn't the book of chronicles in our Old Testament. This is uh, the Persian king, their chronicles, their book of remembrance, okay? And Mordecai, for what he did, he was not rewarded for that at that time. But the memory of his actions were recorded, and his name was written down, never to be forgotten. Fast forward in the story, and one night the king is restless. He can't sleep, and he orders that this book, this chronicles, be brought to him, and it, to be, it, uh, it be read out loud to him. And then he remembers what Mordecai did. And he discovers, and he asks the question, what has been done for this guy? And everybody's like, nothing, king. We kind of dropped the ball there. And so he recognizes that nothing was ever done to honor Mordecai for his faithfulness to the king. So the short of the story is that the king decides to honor Mordecai. This saves Mordecai's life because Mordecai's enemy, Haman, he's the right-hand man of King Ahasuerus, and he was about to have Mordecai hanged. He did not like him. And so now, instead of being killed, Mordecai's being exalted, and Haman is just furious. Now, this book of Chronicles that led to remembering Mordecai, it also led the king to act on behalf of Mordecai. And that's the sort of thing that's going on here in Malachi. Those who have spoken to each other have chosen to honor God and to fear his name, to turn from their sins, to stop doing what God has told them not to do, and they have their names memorialized in the mind of God so that at the appropriate time, God will act on their behalf and bless them at the appropriate time. These people are those who have feared the Lord and esteemed his name. This, th that phrase, fear the Lord and esteemed his name, it's crucial throughout the prophecy of Malachi, as I mentioned. It's already gone on several times, uh, the, the name of the Lord and fearing it. I've showed you how... These people did not honor God's name, right? They despised it. How? By offering polluted sacrifices, by living in sin, by breaking covenant with him and with each other. They've polluted God's name. They don't esteem his name as a nation. In fact, now in problem six, we see that they poorly speak of God's name, right? By saying it's not helpful to be a part of God's community. Remember, God's name represents his person is not just what we call him. It, re it represents his character, his nature. And so to despise God's name means to despise God. If they don't fear his name and have awe of him and honor him, it's God who they do not honor and fear and stand in awe of and revere. They hate God. That's what's going on. These people then... This remnant are those who are vowing to return in obedient covenant living to God. If they are fearing God now, 
in esteeming his name now, then that means they are people who will now offer right sacrifices to God, to the priests, to God through the priests, right? Because those who didn't fear God offered polluted offerings. If they now fear the name of God, they will offer right offerings. They will honor God and not break covenant and be faithless to their spouses. They won't betray God or each other. They will be faithful to God so that God will bless them. And when God blesses them, the nations will praise the name of God and see that these people are blessed by God. They will stop talking trash about God's character and accusing God of letting evildoers go unpunished. They will stop saying that it's pointless and futile to serve and obey God. That's what happens here when we see this reversal from a nation that doesn't fear God to now a remnant that does fear God. All of that sinful behavior and talking shows that people don't fear God or value his name. They don't consider God worthy of worship, but not the remnant. Not the remnant. They have returned and they've renewed their obedience and covenant living to God. And God has taken note of it and recorded their names down, signified by the remem- this book of remembrance, which means that God will act on their behalf in a certain way at a certain time. So then we move on to the next part of answering that question. How will God act on their behalf? And then we're going to see when. We know that God has recorded their names because they've repented and they now fear him. He's going to act on their behalf in a particular way at a certain time. How would God act on their behalf? Scripture says they will be treasured by God. They will be treasured by God. So this is all under point two. The remnant's repentance led to a remembrance by God. And they will be treasured by God. Verse 17 says, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. Now the theme of Israel's, uh, of Israel being God's people really begins to come into view as we see the affliction of Israel in Egypt. Remember when they were in uh, uh, slavery to the Egyptians? They cry out to God and he calls them God says, they're my people. And he says that over and over again. God deliver, God's delivering of them from Egypt ensured that they would continue to be his ethnic people. Exodus 6, verses 6 through 7, God tells them that he, he's going to bring them out of Egypt and out of slavery and oppression. And his, he says, he will redeem them with mighty acts, right? And with great acts of judgment. And we see that in the plagues. And then verse 7 of chapter 6 in Exodus, God says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. I will take you to be my people, and you, and I will be your God. And our God, of course, is speaking to ethnic Israel. This does not mean that every Israelite that ever was, was saved and is with God in eternity. Okay? Nevertheless, they would still be special to him, and they would be his people. In Exodus 19.5, God says to Israel that if, if, this is conditional, if, if, if you obey my voice and you keep my covenant, my commandments, then, then you will be my treasured possession. So you have to understand that there's a sense in which Israel is God's, but not all of Israel is God's. Okay? There's a sense in which Israel is generally God's people in one sense, but another sense in which they are specifically his people or treasured possession 
only if they obey his voice and keep covenant with him. So in a general sense, the nation of Israel, ethnically speaking, was God's possession in that they were selected to be a special people, special agents, by which the entire world would receive the Savior because Jesus was Jewish. He was an Israelite. Okay? And through their covenant living, God designated through, their, through the Mosaic covenant, through all the crazy stuff that they had to do in laws, and it's just it's a complicated system that nobody can adhere to fully. But through that, the entire world could see how God would save people, save sinners, through a substitute sacrifice. And so they were chosen to be his people for that reason. In this sense, all of Israel belonged to God. Yet not all Israel was saved, Scripture tells us. For instance, if you recall when I preached through the book of Ruth, I mentioned that Ruth, she had a father-in-law, and her husband, they were Jewish, but they both died in unbelief. They both died running from God in Moab, in broken covenant with him. They were not saved. They were not God's spiritual people, although they were his physical, ethnic people. Here in Malachi, you have to see that God is making a distinction between his people and his people. His people and his people. Israel is his people. But in this verse, God is specifically talking about those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name, right? That's who he's talking about. It's these people who who are going to have their names, only their names recorded in the book of remembrance. And it's only these people that will be the final treasured possession of God. Do you see how it's not all Israel that will be saved? But those who come to God in repentance and faith? God is himself distinguishing between his ethnic people and his spiritual people. Between those who are God's people by birth and those who are God's people by faith and repentance. God's book of remembrance will ensure that on a particular day, on a particular day, he will act on their behalf and reward them and bless them. How so? This faithful remnant will be part of his treasured possession. They will belong to God forever. Have you ever had a treasured possession? Something that you're like, oh man, I, I could keep this forever. Okay. Sometimes we feel like that about our kids. Oh. You're the apple of my eye. Or maybe you had a fancy car when you were a teenager, and it, it was like 20 cylinders, just loud. Rah! Right? You're like, oh, this car is awesome. Right? Whatever your treasured possession is, you know what it's like to have something that you treasure as a kid. Okay? Even as an adult. That's what, how God speaks of us. When? When? In that day. On that day. There is a coming day. There is a coming day. This points forward from Malachi. This points forward, even forward from our standpoint. Forward from now. Malachi has already spoken of the day of the Lord. He's spoken of a coming visit from Christ. And we see that right in the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We see that in the Gospels. We see it in history. That God said Christ would come. And he did. And they thought that was the day of the Lord. But we see that this visit from God was broken up into two stages. Okay, there's another event in which he's coming again a second time to judge the world. In Jesus's first visit, he came to accomplish this salvation for us, accomplish salvation and rescue by living a perfect life, by dying on the cross in our place and by rising again. 
Salvation happened all across the world prior to Jesus dying on the cross. There were Gentiles being saved. When Jesus came, it happened on a massive scale. Okay? You could still be saved if you were non-Jewish prior to Jesus' coming, his first coming. But once the gospel, Christ came, the gospel was spread by his disciples, and now people from all over the world are being saved on an even greater scale. And those that are saved by Christ will be spared the final judgment when the wicked are cast into the lake of fire. A distinction is coming. A separation is coming. And in scripture we see that salvation and judgment are always in tandem. It's like heads and tails. You can't have one without the other. Okay? Heads on this side, tails on the other. It's part of the same coin. Salvation and judgment. Let me explain. When God saved Noah, it was through the judgment of the wicked, right? They happened at the same time. When God saved Israel out of Egypt, it was through the judgment of the wicked. It happened at the same time. When God saved Israel over and over again from the enemies in the book of Judges, it was through the destruction of the wicked. That is the pattern that we see all throughout Scripture, that salvation and judgment come at the same time. Just prior to Jesus Christ's return, the distinction between God's people and the damned will start to become clear prior to Christ's coming, just right prior to that. It will be made known during the great tribulation period. During the great tribulation period, God will begin to punish the world for their hatred of him and their persecution of us. And this will mirror the judgments given uh, that we see in the book of Exodus. It will mirror the judgments that we see upon Egypt for their oppression of Israel. And just as God spared the Israelites from the plagues, so too God will spare us from the trumpet and the bold judgments of Revelation. The wicked will begin to taste the wrath of God, which indicates that final judgment is coming, that God is just getting warmed up. And when God comes against them, all right, when Christ comes again, I should say, after that tribulation period, it will be to save us as the world is an utter shock that God kept his word and came a second time, that Jesus came a second time like he said. And the world will be like, oh man, we did not believe that this was possible. We did not think that this, we thought Christianity was a joke. And they will not be able to hide from God. They will have cried for the mountains and the rocks to fall on them. And they won't be able to stop that and neither will they be able to stop the eternal punishment of God. And their mockery of his return will be turned into shame and dismay. And God will be shown to be faithful. And that he is not faithless in his promise to return. But he is slow and patient, giving people time to repent. On that day, when Christ comes, we will forever be united with him. And we will forever be his people in that day. And we are told that our names are recorded in the book of life. It is the same book of remembrance here in Malachi. The book of life in the mind of God. Recorded. And he will not forget that you are there. This book ensures, this memory of God ensures that when Christ comes again, he will faithfully reward those who fear and esteem his name. You see, all of scripture points us to the day of Christ's victory. For his glory and for his treasured people. In Malachi, these treasured people that God has remembered, they are part of the true kingdom of God in Malachi. Church, this 
scripture is pointing forward to the fulfillment of the new covenant in Jesus Christ. While they are part of ethnic Israel, this remnant, they are part of all believers of all time that will be in God's kingdom. God has already promised that evildoers in Israel will be condemned and judged, but God's grace in Malachi says here there's a day of coming that the faithful remnant will be shown to be God's treasured people. And that includes us as well. We will be shown, believers in Christ will be shown to be his people, and he will be shown to be our God. That distinction will be evident to all, believers and unbelievers. We are his possession now. He is our God now. But a day is coming when it will be evident to all. When God remembers his repentant people, not only will they be his treasured possession, but secondly, we see that they will be spared. They will be spared. Look at the rest of verse 17. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. This is part of the blessing of those remembered by God in repentance and faith. Through Malachi, God uses this analogy um, of a man who spares his son who serves him or a man who has pity or compassion on his son who serves him. We might make a valid comparison to the prodigal son who was met with delight and joy from his father when he returned home from a life filled with sin. Remember that? He was spared the wrath of his father and the father threw a celebration for him. Had a servant re returned home after mistreating the father in this way, the master, the servant would not have been treated in the same way. He would have been punished. But it is not so with the son who returns home in repentance. And God is trying to communicate the tenderness and pity and compassion he has on those who heed his word and come home to him. We've already spoken of this, but final judgment in the lake of fire is not reserved for those who fear God and esteem his name. The people that fear God and esteem his name in Malachi, again, they're those who've returned to covenant living and proper sacrifice and worship. That does not mean, though, listen, it doesn't mean that we are to place ourselves under the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant has faded away, all right? That was a law, Scripture says, to lead us to Christ. It was a guide meant to lead us to Christ. So to be, how do we take what they're doing and not do it? Are we going to start offering proper sacrifices? Or are we going to, that was all part of their covenant. Well, yes, we need to offer proper sacrifice. But here's the way that we do it. They were to bring pure and undefiled sacrifices to God as substitutes in their place. As perfect representatives of what they could not themselves do. They could not present themselves perfectly to God. So they had to have a substitute come before them in perfection. They deserve the judgment of God. And so this substitute perfection would die in its place. Therefore, how do we properly worship and fear and esteem the name of God? We come to God and say, God, I can't bring you myself. All I, all I can say is, Jesus, please be my righteousness. Jesus, please be my perfection. God, that is how I honor you. Jesus in my place, honored you perfectly. I can't bring myself to you. I'm filthy. So if you want to properly give God the best, you don't give him yourself because you're polluted. You stand before him with Christ as your perfect substitute. That is how you worship God, which is why every sermon should be Christ-centered. Every song should be focused on what Christ did in his resurrection and death or, or helping us to adore God. We worship through Christ. We pray in the name of Christ. It's all centered around Jesus Christ. You have no righteousness, nothing to bring but sin. That is how we properly fulfill and imitate what was going on in Israel. Right? That's how you honor God. 
by exalting the perfect one over yourself. So if we're to properly apply Malachi, that's what it means to come to the Lord and to return to him. For them, they had to return to this covenant living. For us, it means clinging to Jesus as our righteousness and our, sac- our sacrifice. We stand before him in this way, and thus we can worship God properly, giving him what he deserves, 100% obedience through Christ. We will be spared judgment on that day, and God will make us his very own possession forevermore. So we have seen that this remnants, their repentance has led to a renewed commitment to God, and how it's led to remembrance by God. Lastly, briefly, we see this, that the remnant's repentance leads to a recognition of God's justice. The remnant's repentance leads to a recognition of God's justice. In verse 18, it says, Then at that time, once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Remember the sixth problem of Malachi we're in? They have said it's pointless to serve God and to obey God. and It's vain to walk in his statutes, the Mosaic Covenant. Because the wicked escape. They go unpunished. They seem to have a blessed life. Today's text has really been a response to their grumblings and harsh words against God. And so the point of all of this in this verse, this final verse, is to show God to be himself just and righteous. Unlike the claims of the wicked people in Malachi who say God is wrong. He's unjust. He's, he tolerates wickedness. The remnant, they're not saying this anymore. But to make it abundantly clear, God will clearly demonstrate to one and to all that he sees the righteous and he sees the wicked. He knows the difference between the two. He has recorded who has repented and he has put that in his book of remembrance. He knows who it is. And on that day, a special day, he will make his treasured possession his own and he will spare them from the judgment. It says, then once more, yet again, one more time. That is to say, You've seen it again. You've seen me differentiate between the righteous and the wicked. You're going to see it again. Which, it's like, how could Israel not see that God was just and righteous? He's saying, you've seen it so many times, Israel. And you will see it again. Your words are not true against me. You've all acted like I'm blind to wickedness and don't care. Did you forget the past? Have you forgotten history? Do you remember what happened to the wicked people in Noah's day? Do you remember what happened to the Egyptians? Do you remember what happened to the Assyrians? Do you remember what happened to Edom? Do you remember what happened to Babylon? Do you remember what happened to all these groups? How can you say that I turn a blind eye to sin? God does not let evildoers escape. A distinction will be made one day. And where Malachi goes next in chapter 4, which we'll look at next time, He continues on with the day of the Lord in further detail. A day of wrath when the wicked are set ablaze and the one who fears his name, they will be blessed. This will undoubtedly set the false accusations straight. Evildoers are not blessed. The arrogant are not rewarded. God is coming to act in finality and total destruction is coming for the wicked while total salvation is coming for his people. Church Malachi was written directly to the people of Israel in their local situation. We have to remember, though, that there is a fuller meaning to this passage. The passage points way forward to the new covenant in which both believing Jew and believing Israel, uh, uh, believing Gentile, I should say, Jews and Gentiles are brought together in one people, in Christ. We are part of the nations that Malachi refers to that will offer right sacrifice to the Lord. With the remnant of 
people from Israel that exist today because there is a remnant. One of our pastors is Jewish. He's part of that remnant who fear the name of the Lord along with Gentiles who fear the name of the Lord. We will be merged together and are being merged together to be one treasured possession of God that will be spared the wrath of God. 1 Peter 2.9 says, we as a church, we are God's own possession. That's language from the Old Testament speaking of Israel. Titus 2.15 tells us that God, that Christ gave himself up to purify us so that we'd be a people for his own possession. Simply put, Christ came to make us his own so that we'd obey him and display his glory and be rescued and reconciled to him. The new covenant, which is for Jew and for Gentile, states that God will be our God and we will be his people. That's in the new covenant. Language that received only for, reserved only for Israel is meant for all true believers in Jesus Christ. The Corinthians were told that the church is the temple of the living God and that God would dwell among us and he will be our God and we will be his people. So when Malachi speaks of God remembering these people who turn to him and are, and are his spared treasured people, he has in mind believing Israel, but in a fuller sense, he also has in mind all Gentiles, all non-Jews who will believe in Jesus Christ. Malachi is for us, church. It is not just for a people that existed 2,400 years ago. Malachi gives us hope. Malachi gives us warning to never turn away from God. Malachi points us to Christ. Malachi points us to the fact that it is vanity to be, uh, to be in rebellion against God. That's where vanity is found, and it is a blessing to be in obedience to our Lord. It is a blessing to repent and to come to him for salvation. The worldwide distinction is coming, and I pray that you're ready for it. If you're not a Christian, I have two commands for you from God. They're not from me. They are from God. Number one, repent of your sin and self-ruled life. Number two, believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again to make you his own possession. That's where his blessing is. God has warned you of a coming day in which the righteous will be separated from the wicked. The righteous will be blessed. God is mercifully and compassionately calling you to himself today. Heed his word. And he will heed and listen to what you have to say. Do not harden your heart to the Father anymore. If you're a believer in Christ, then our God is worthy of praise. He is worthy of your highest affection. We belong to him and he is our God. Let us love him and remain steadfast. Let us obey him since he has saved us. Let us resist turning away from him. Let us renew our commitment to him and to each other. Let us spur each other on and have conversations and continue to direct ourselves towards Christ like this remnant. Let us rejoice that our names are recorded in the Lamb's book of life, that God will reward us upon his return with himself. Let us praise him that we will be spared on the day of wrath. Salvation belongs to the Lord and he has granted it to us. Knowing that our God is supreme, let us sing another song together of worship to our God and let us prepare to take communion. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in adoration I pray that you would increase our affection and make it abound, God. Help us to love you over the sinful things that we often crave in this world. God, I pray, Lord, by your spirit that you would remind us of the great salvation that we have, that we are your people, we are spared from judgment, we are your possession. Lord, you have called us to this. And we will one day, God, as we will learn next time from Malachi, jump around like calves, 
that have just been released from their stalls. God, we will be free from this evil world and forever living in the new creation with you, the new heaven on earth. No sin, no pain, no sickness, no suffering, no death, no sadness, no rebellion. Just you and us, God, and a beautiful creation. And we will be yours forever, and you will be our God. Lord, we long for that day. But Lord, until then, it's just not your desire yet because there are people who still need to repent and come to Christ. And so I pray that they would do so this morning, that your word would penetrate their heart, God, that the darkness is in there, that God, you would call light into their heart. The untruth, remove it, God, and put truth in there. A dead heart that's in rebellion to you, rip it out, God, and replace it with a heart that beats for you. These are things only you can do, God, for salvation belongs to you. So I pray that you would work in the lives of unbelievers, that you would work in the lives of your church people, and you would renew our commitment to you today for your glory's sake and out of love for what you have done for us in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, we're going to receive communion. The ushers will pass it out as we sing this next.